Kansas League was as good as it got outside of the majors, and he enjoyed the job and liked the WAPs. Sometime between the sixth and seventh inning, Mom's contractions got bad enough for her to send Bethany down to the bench and tell the manager to give Pop the high sign. That's when he killed the Italian guy from Providence with an inside fastball to the temple. A terrific pitch that just got away from him, the boys from Sacconi said. Besides, he was crowding the plate. Anyway, my pop was about equidistant from a contracting wife in a dead second baseman. Later on, when he'd tell and retell it, he said he was between a rock and a hard place. I was the hard place, and Vince Seuss, the manager, drove Mom to lying in where I was born. Pop stayed with the Italian guy and had some beers with the two teams while the ambulance people worked on him. They all agreed he was a feisty kid, decent glove, above-average base runner who stood in there and did not back down. Bethany came to the hospital with Pop that evening. As crazy as it sounds, I remember looking out around the blue room and fixing on a head about the size of a softball with tight curly hair, mouthing something silently. I do remember this, although I'm aware that babies can't focus, and there is no reason to assume I was a special baby. Six pounds, one ounce. Still, the memory had to have a foundation somewhere, a starting point. I was baptized Smithson-Eyed at Grace Episcopal Church in Providence. We lived in East Providence, which was traditionally Protestant, but now had a load of Catholics due to 50 years of immigration from the Azores. Episcopals had mostly fled to Providence, where you wore a tie to service and had real wine at Mass and not grape juice. Symbolism was very important to Mom. Bread without yeast, real wine in a chalice, that stuff. We crossed the bridge to Providence every Sunday, where Mom's thick New England accent became English. My pop ushered, and me and Bethany sang in the mixed choir until the incident in 59. The breast thing. This is what I remember. Some of it's so clear it's almost like walking out of your house on a freezing morning, sun blazing after a snowstorm. You see things as if it was the first time. A tree, a car, something about the way the snow shines from that thin glaze of ice. Does that make sense? Some things I see like that, absolutely clear. But mostly there's a fog and rain. Some holidays, a couple of football games, uncles and aunts, Bee and Norma Mulvey, Billy Prisco, fishing in Narragansett Bay, and you're gone. No more kid. Like Bethany, really. Some of her is in the rain, and some is glazed in ice. Talking to herself. That stuff. It's foggy. The posing. The dancing. It's clear. When she was ten, my parents had a system in place that allowed them to ignore the little things that had been appearing for several years. Mom would say offhand over dinner that Bethany's teachers sent a note home that she'd been talking gibberish all week and refused to stop. Pop would listen and nod and turn to Bethany with his best cross look, point his finger and say, No more. 
Or she would say to Pop how Bethany had an accident, and a large sewing needle passed through one of her fingers, and Pop would nod and take her for ice cream. Or Mom would say how Bethany frightened little Smithy today by running headfirst into the wall of his bedroom, or that she cursed at Mrs. Sunman, or that she ate part of Pop's field and stream, or went into the backyard with no clothes on even though it was November, and B. Mulvey had to bring her back into the house. Pop would listen and nod and turn to Bethany and point his finger. This didn't seem like a good system to me then. Now I think it was a good system. Also, foggy or not, I remember the women mostly, and how they were with Bethany, especially later on when the system wasn't working and there was an uncomfortableness in our little Cape house. Winnie Prisco across the street, problems of her own with the alcohol and Al and her retarded daughter Alberta, would come out and stand with Bethany as if there was nothing wrong with her standing in a pose for hour after hour. Winnie would talk to my sister, standing unbelievably still in the middle of Bright Ridge Avenue, talk and talk and talk, until finally Bethany would break her pose and pull her arms down, and Winnie would take her hand and bring her home. No comments, no conclusion, just Winnie bringing her home. And on the side streets where the Portuguese painted their homes the light greens and yellows and blues that jarred our off-white New England, Mrs. Rose and Mrs. Pacheco and especially Mrs. Rocha, who wore the thick black dress of peasantry, hugged her and kissed her and whispered to her against the pose of her madness. People can accept anything as regular. It has to be in a routine. It has to reoccur. But once that thing happens, however impossible you imagine it would be to bear, and happens enough, you can bear it. Also, the bearing of the thing becomes routine itself. People create their own individual routine of bearing, and no two routines are anywhere alike. At least that's my way of looking at it. Bethany did her sophomore year in high school at the Bradley Hospital. Mom and our pediatrician, Reuben Bates, thought she was too emotional, or too impulsive, or ardent, or susceptible, or fiery, and Bradley Hospital was specifically suited for emotional problems. The curriculum balanced the usual core academics of math and science and English with intense play therapy and a thing called acting out. Occasionally, the staff let the acting out get out of hand, and they would administer tranquilizers in tiny peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Bethany would hide them and show them to me when we'd visit on Sundays. Once she gave Pop some, and he ate them. Nothing happened. I hated, I hate that we sent her there, even though it was close and she came home in June. I hated that we sent her because when she came back, she was nasty. I knew she couldn't help it, and mostly she was nasty to herself, but the sweet voice was gone, and she didn't care how she looked anymore. I suppose I knew it would happen anyway, like a snowball down a hill, but Bethany had been wonderful, and even though she would pick on me like big sisters do, I knew she loved me, and she still loved me even later, but it was something that you had to feel and couldn't explain. The next September, the breast thing happened. 
It was the first Sunday after summer vacation. We crossed the Washington Bridge and drove to church. I remember an optimism, even an energy for Mom and Pop that made me feel good. Bethany had had a terrific summer as far as being odd. She wasn't. She got a great tan and let her hair grow out. She still could be nasty, but it was a new element in her, and I figured it would pass. It was great that summer. We had two beaches. Mom could take us to one in Warren and the other at Point Judith. And when I went to Boy Scout camp, Bethany even came down for the parade and was shy and nice and everything. That Sunday, Mom had on her basic London upper-class accent, and Pop told a joke, I remember, to the other ushers that had the word fuck in it. They all laughed, even Mr. Emmett, who was a church big deal, head usher and tight ass. Then the men gathered together to be assigned the order of collection and who would present the priest with the body and blood. Mr. Emmett would never say wine and wafers. He'd always say body and blood, and this really pissed Pop off. And usually on the ride back across the Washington Bridge into East Providence, he'd yell about what a jerk and a big-time ass Mr. Emmett was because he had money given to him that he never had to work for. But in church, Pop always nodded happily at any assignment he was given. That Sunday, Pop got the center-left aisle to work the collection plate, and this is important because when the breast thing happened, it was directly behind him as his back was turned, and he was the very last person to see it. So Mom is seated with Mrs. Merrill, whose husband also ushered, in the middle center. Pop is standing in back, and Bethany and me are both in the alto section of the mixed choir, which is to the left of the organ and perpendicular to the congregation. Bethany had a wonderful voice, and I'm not blowing smoke because she was my sister. It had a separateness to it, like a clarinet, almost as if the sound was unattached in its fullness to the instrument. At one time, Mr. Kronheimer gave her most of the solos, until one Easter when she stood silent through her section of the communion anthem because she said something told her not to sing. But she had a voice you could savor, even in a crowd. Mr. Kronheimer directed us from a large mirror he had positioned on the opposite wall. We could watch him through the mirror and not have to turn to him, which would have us singing upwind of the congregation. He directed with passion, a word that I think is overused, but passion is the word. Often at rehearsals with the men and boys and ladies and girls pinched tight behind his grand piano, the old man would lose himself in his refrain and close his eyes, and we would all leave after a while as he played. The kids called him crunchy, but I never knew why. I did know he edited and rewrote thousand-year-old hymns to make them more accessible to us, and they turned out better than when the monks wrote them in the first place. And his original compositions, especially the Easter Mass, and his amazing jazz mass for any occasion, ring in my ears to this day. Bethany told him he was the only real artist she knew. Crunchy told her she should sing louder in the verite, because the men were all he could hear. On this particular Sunday, the temperature was miserably hot right from the first get-up, and Grace Episcopal was actually hotter and wetter inside than the rest of Rhode Island was outside. It may have been fall, but not really. 
not one of our falls. We had to wear the black cassocks, and if you combine them with the starched white shirt and ties or Sunday skirt and blouse, you had a personal steam room. Crunchy began the processional hymn, and all forty or so of the mixed choir followed the altar boy, who carried the tall cross, out of the vestry, into the left side of the huge Anglican structure, down to the rear of the church, and up the center aisle. We sang the harvest hymn. I remember because it was one of my favorites of the sacred music. I liked it because it was sort of non-denominational, the way I had been feeling at thirteen, and it had a kind of marching song quality. Let all things now living rejoice in thanksgiving to God our Creator. By the time we slid into our five rows, we glistened. We shined from our perspiration, and our hair sagged and flattened. I was a little self-conscious about flattened hair. I had an unusually large head and a big face to match. Carefully groomed hair parted evenly on the left allowed the fine brown strands contour and shape. Soggy, it appeared as if a New Mexico plateau eroded on all four sides by centuries of wind and rain set slanted on my skinny neck. A friend of mine, a kid I used to know, thought I looked like Frankenstein. He wasn't being mean. He thought it was kind of neat. Bethany once did a science project on my head. She took all of Mom's pictures of me from a baby to ten or eleven, I forget, arranged them on a stiff piece of cardboard, and set it up on a music stand in the seventh-grade science room. Underneath the middle picture of me, she had written, The Boy with the Planet Head. Everybody got mad and made her take it down. Mom cried. My pop pointed. I loved it. I was growing into my head. So we're all sweating and fanning ourselves with our church program, the processional being over, and old Mrs. Emmett, who was also a church big deal tight ass, waddled up to the marble podium and read the collect. It was short, about St. Matthew, and about how he was an apostle and evangelist, and gave up money and stuff. Even though she read horribly and seemed to drool down the side of her mouth, which she wiped about forty times in a minute or so, the colic seemed to pique Bethany's attention. She just stared straight ahead. I was worried that she'd gone into another pose, but then we had to read Psalm 74 in unison, and she joined in. She trembled, though, about God not being around in the first section.